Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest installment of For What It's Worth. Um, I think the only brainless thing left for this president to do, and I've been thinking about this for a long time, and I've also been thinking about the fact that people are always asking if I ask the crowd what to talk about on this podcast. And the first thing I'm going to say is, no, I never do that, because I know that you guys will never talk about what I want to talk about which is killing all the manatees, because I think the only dumb thing this administration has not done is kill the manatees. But I think there's hope. There's hope yet to kill and eradicate this horrible species. Uh, and I think it's if we just told Trump that they were flesh eaters, that they were eating children, maybe, I think he would probably figure out a way to exterminate all the manatees. Okay, moving forward, uh, before we get started, I can't do the podcast this week without uh, addressing the virus, which has really taken off. Obviously, I'm not a medical professional. I can't speak to this medically. It looks pretty bad. Uh, but I, what I can speak with, I believe, is common sense and something that it, apparently very few people in our administration have because we have botched this response to the virus uh, beyond belief. And I think what it's done is it's set us back um, in historic proportions. I don't think that when this is all said and done, whatever happens, I think the last three weeks of the response from the administration will go down in history as one of the biggest, most deadly blunders in the history of our country. Um, now, here's the thing. I think that, that what we have to do, speaking of common sense-wise, is every single one of us, every single one of you that's listening to this, myself included— is we have to change our lifestyle immediately. So to me, the whole idea of quarantining or socially isolating ourselves is not a choice. It's something that we all have to do as a responsibility for our culture and society. So I am back at my house that I just moved into, a new rental unit, and I have absolutely no plans to leave for the foreseeable future. Um, that kind of sucks because obviously there's a lot of places I'd like to go, a lot of things I'd like to do. And I could go and do some of these, but I think that would be in some ways very selfish of me to go out there and do these things when, who knows, maybe I already have the coronavirus and I'm, you know, in the period of um, not showing any symptoms yet. So I think the only thing we can do is drastically change our lifestyles in the short term for hope of a quicker solution in the long term. I don't know if that's uh, possible, but... Um, I'm a little skeptical. I still hear people saying, I'm not worried. I don't care. I'm not changing my life, blah, blah, blah. So I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen, but it is certainly an unparalleled experience in my lifetime. And uh, it's not fun. And it just, so many people are going to get hurt by this. And so many people are going to economically be hurt by this, that um, it's just sad. Okay, moving on. Our hero of the week, we don't really have one yet. Um, whoever comes up with a good plan to combat this virus in our government, clearly that person does not exist. We have to get the politicians out of the way, and we have to get people that actually understand science up there making the decisions. This is a joke, and it's gone on long enough listening to basically a collective of science deniers. And this is not just the president and the vice president. This trickles all the way down to the city level, where you have idiotic people at cities, city levels, and you know who you are, Florida— um, who are basically denying that this is a, a community transmissible disease. So politics are still running rampant here in the U.S. I can't speak to the rest of the world, but we, uh, we are going to suffer for this in a major way. Okay, point number one this week is about fighting. I mean, who doesn't love fighting, right? Every problem 
it, the solution is always a fist fight, right? That's what we all learned as kids, right? Anytime, why talk it out when you can just beat someone else down to the ground? No, I'm kidding. But there's an upcoming fight in the MMA, um, and I like mixed martial arts, but let me explain why I like mi mixed martial arts. Most of the time when I tell people I like mixed martial arts, I get a reaction, especially from people in the creative world who turn their noses up in disgust and talk about human cockfighting or violence or whatever. Now, these people are the biggest hypocrites you've ever seen in your life because they may not like MMA, but they like something equally as, as, as odd as MMA. So get off the high horse and just stop for a minute. I don't like all MMA. I like some MMA, and typically what I like are very small people who are skilled in multiple disciplines, and I mean skilled at a level that very few people walking the earth are at this level. I find that intriguing. I also find it intriguing when the two people do not hate one another. They are simply going in there to compete against skill versus skill, and there's a fight coming up between Habib Nagramenablav. I cannot pronounce your last name, Habib. I apologize. It is a mouthful. It is astounding just to see and tr attempt to read his last name. I can't do it. So it's, I'm just going to call him Habib. Everyone just calls him Habib. Against a guy named Tony Ferguson, who has to be, if not my favorite MMA fighter, definitely in the top three. Ferguson is a weirdo. He's from Costa Mesa, California, I think. But a very, very interesting dude who has a uh, completely unique style. And these two guys have tried to fight, I think, four times before. And every time it was canceled. One time Habib didn't make weight. One time Ferguson tore his ACL stepping on a cable for a camera during an interview. I mean, it's been crazy. And now it looks like they may have to fight in front of no audience because uh, with, the, with the virus sort of impacting things. I have a sinking suspicion they may cancel the whole thing again. But I need to go back a little bit and give you a little history about why I like MMA. When I was a kid, I, my hero was Bruce Lee followed very shortly by Chuck Norris, right? And Chuck Norris at the time, if you bought a martial arts magazine, which were truly some of the worst edited, photographed, written things you could possibly find, but still wickedly cool, there was always an advertisement for the Chuck Norris jeans with the expandable crotch, you know, the gusseted crotch, the, the flexible, stretchable crotch. And man, did I want a pair of those. I wanted a pair of those so that I could, I could wear my cowboy boots just like Chuck had in the commercial, in the ad, and I could just roundhouse my sister in the neck at any point and really not even feel any friction down there. I never did get those. My parents were like, forget about it. We're not buying you these Chuck Norris jeans. You'll go out and be a menace to society. But, but above Chuck was Bruce. And Bruce Lee, to me, was, was such an interesting character. When I first learned about him, first of all, he was probably the first Asian guy that I ever had any uh, knowledge of, or really any, any maybe the first person, for person blah, 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 from the Asian culture that, that allowed me to sort of crack open the door in terms of Asian culture in general. I think he was such an influential guy, not only with his personality in the martial arts, but the combination of who he was, the actor, the personality, and the martial artist, uh, I was completely in love with Bruce Lee. I was like, that's who I want to be. And so I started taking martial arts. And at the time where I lived, the only martial art you could take was Taekwondo, which is a Korean hard style sort of power on power martial art. And it was fun and I liked it and I was good at it. But, you know, I was a little guy. I'm not a big guy. And so you know, getting into the ring with people that was bigger with Taekwondo was hard. I mean, it was really painful. And, and I kind of felt limited in some ways by that. I tried to study Aikido and nobody taught it. I, tr I, I found Hapkido, um, but the school wasn't great. And 
at one point, this is where the story gets interesting. At one point, my father, who thought this was going to be a quick fad with me, I think, realized, okay, he's, he's committed. And somehow my, my father, through his network, I'm using that word loosely, network, my father was friends with a guy who was a former military guy who ran a school for corporate and personal security. Now, these were guys who were training SWAT, SWAT team, police departments, military, God knows, mercenaries. I have no idea. I don't think there were mercenaries there, but there were all kinds of law enforcement people. And my dad somehow talked these guys into letting me come and study at this school. And my dad would drive me to this place and drop me off. And I don't think my parents had any idea what was happening here because this was not a school of martial arts. This was a school of real world fighting. This was a school of what happens if you're taken hostage? How do you get out of a car if you're under fire? How close quarter combat, you know, how to get in, if you get into a fight, how to end it quickly with the most vicious attacks you can possibly imagine. And here's the other thing. This was way before MMA, but they were teaching us how to ground fight. They were teaching us how to grapple and fight on the ground and fight off of your back on the ground. Now, here's the other funny part is that I was the only kid. So I get thrown into the school and I remember literally fighting the head of the Austin SWAT team and I was in middle school. And there was a ring, but the ring didn't have ropes. The ring was simply a taped-off square on the floor. And when you accepted the responsibility of going in the ring, you could not leave. You could not back out if something bad happened. You had to stay in the ring. Now, here's the funny part, is I got my, my ass kicked over and over and over. And when we sparred, we, didn't, we pulled punches, but we didn't completely pull the punch. And the idea was if you screwed up, you wanted to feel the pain of screwing up. That was sort of this, you know, twisted little mentality of how you're going to get better at this. And I got my butt kicked. It was the only time in my life I've been hit where my knees buckled. And I was like, oh, I've seen that happen in the ring. I've seen that happen on TV where someone gets hit on the point of the chin, on either side on the point of the chin. And what happens is it doesn't hurt your chin. It goes straight to your knees and you lose like your ability to stand up is really weird. Now, the flip side is there were a couple of magical moments in my, my time studying at this school. One was fighting a policeman, and um, he had backed me into the corner of this taped-off ring, and he was throwing back-leg round kicks into my body as hard as he could. And my elbows, I had bruises on the inside of my elbows and my hip, hip pointers because my elbows would get driven into the side of my body so hard. And he was just wailing on me, and I couldn't leave. And so what I did is I switched and went southpaw. My right leg's my stronger leg. And so as he approached me, I lifted up my right leg. I spun on my, my, my left foot, and then I did a front leg sidekick to try to keep him off of me. That was really the only goal. But he knew what I was doing, and he thought that I was going to retract my leg, put my foot back down. But I retracted my leg, and I didn't put my foot back down. I kept it up in the air. And he made the mistake of coming directly at me instead of an angle, and he opened up, and I just, wham, I just front leg round kicked him, and it literally lifted him off the ground. It sandwiched him. He, like, bent completely in half, and I remember he landed on the ground, and he looked up at me, and very, very slowly, his mouthpiece fell out on the ground. And that was probably the single best moment of my entire martial arts life, but I just wanted to share that. I thought it was a wonderful moment. No idea who he was. He probably holds a grudge. He's a cop. What can I do about it? Okay, moving on. I just read a book about spies. I love espionage. I love spies. I love the history of spies. I've been to the spy museum a bunch of times. I dig it. I'm curious, and this is just going to be a quick point, is a question, is 
what would make you treasonous? What would make you do something that would uh, cause you to spy against your country? I'm guessing money, or, or maybe uh, depending on your sexual orientation, it could be a woman, could be a man. I mean, the right person, and who knows what you'll do. We've all done crazy things. Okay, point number three is probably the most important point of my entire photographic career because it deals with a piece of equipment, and as we all know, your photography is 100% based on your equipment. It has nothing to do with anything else. I bought a Miticon Speedmaster 0.95 lens for my Fuji system, and I have to say it is a blast to use. The Fuji, you can set it where it shows you when you're in manual focus, it can show you what you, what you have in focus, and it's super easy to use. I heard stories about not being able to focus this thing. It's a joke. It's really easy. Um, and it's wonderful. The fall-off is really beautiful. It's, a not, it's not the contrastiest lens in the world, but it has a really nice tonal range, and it's been a blast so far to use, and the close focusing distance is really tight, so it's, it's pretty great, and I've also been using it for video. Um, and I've been doing all these sort of little tiny snippet, like diary video things that I'm going to start doing these random postings on my YouTube channel just for fun. Now, this also leads me to a second piece of equipment, which is the X-T4. And I probably will end up buying an X-T4 only because I need the IBIS. Now, my job at Blurb has become a lot about making short videos. And if I don't have anything currently that I can use handheld... And it sucks because tripods are just a pain in the ass. And I, and I have never liked tripods. And so I really, really, really want to get an X-T4 for that. I've heard uh, through, some, through the grapevine from some friends that the screen on the back is horrible. It's like the, the tragic flaw of the protagonist. And uh, apparently it's really cheaply made and um, easily breakable and just an absolute bonehead move from Fuji. So what were you thinking, man? Okay, point number four is Uncle Dano's getting a new computer, but it's not what you think. So I am still using a 2015, early 2015 MacBook Pro. Now, the beauty of the early 15 MacBook Pro is that it has ports. And I use, I'm, I'm looking across the room at my laptop right now, every port is being used. And every port gets used every day. The new laptops from Apple that are being distributed have horrible battery life. They, and they have no ports. And everybody that uses them looks at me and says, I'm so jealous that you still have that old computer. That tells you how bad the Apple stuff is. Now, the new 16-inch MacBook Pro looks real. It looks good. It still has the idiotic port scenario. Um, and Blurb, if I'm going to get a computer from them and I'm getting a new computer, then that's probably what I would get. But the problem is this: spec'd out the way I need it, that's a five thousand dollar machine. And not, it's not Blurb saying to me you can't get that machine. It's me saying that is an idiotic amount of money to spend on a laptop computer. That is just lunacy. I don't care if you are in the Apple network. Who cares? I mean, once you're in Adobe Premiere, what, what does it matter if you're on Windows or Mac? It doesn't. So why would I spend or have the company spend that kind of money? Even if they said, Milner, we want nothing more than to get you the 16-inch MacBook Pro, I'd be like, no, save the money. So what I figured out is, and I didn't figure it out, someone else pointed this out to me, uh, that there was a old trash can, black trash can Mac, which I know is not ideal, um, that was in the studio at Blurb that no one was using. And so someone said, why don't you take that? And so I did some research, and I'm like, eh, this thing does not have good reviews, whatever. So the guy, our, our person at Blurb who does the, the tech stuff, sent me the specs on this thing. And I was like, whoa, this thing is, is loaded. And he said, oh, yeah, this is light years ahead of your laptop. So anyway, I've got that coming, which is great, and it will be 100% dedicated towards Adobe Premiere, which is now my life. And holy cow, I suck at Premiere. I mean, I suck. If you literally, I could be in the bottom 5% 
of Adobe Premiere users worldwide, and I would not be surprised. It is so complicated, and there are so many options of what to do. I was trying to do something yesterday like an idiot. I, punched, I, I, I basically punched out a film yesterday, a very short one, which may, some of you may have seen on YouTube about the Fuji file and using a magazine as a test magazine. And I thought I'd get really fancy and I would do this transition at the front, this template where I could have a single line of text like moving in. Yeah, that, that ruined about four hours of my day, watching me having to start and restart Premiere over and over again because I kept screwing up. So I'll get there. I have an idea. I have a vision in my head of what I want. I just don't know how to get it yet. Okay, moving on. Point number five. What would you be doing if you weren't doing what you were doing now and you could do anything and there's no strings attached and money is not an object? What would you be doing? I think this is one of the hardest questions that you can possibly answer. And I think that because I've asked this question to many, many, many people over the years including family members who were like sort of in transitional periods and they were unsure what they wanted. And I said, well, okay, no strings. You can do anything in the world. What do you want to do? And every, t every single time I've asked, the person I've asked has said, I don't know. No, I'm going to give you a little hint from me here. I would still be telling stories and I would probably be doing something with cycling. I also love anti-terrorism stuff. I love to write, and I love uh, archaeology and paleontology as well. So I would probably be doing a lot of the similar things I'm doing now. Uh, but um, I'd be independently wealthy, of course, and have like a just a insanely obnoxiously large house and like 50 cars, and I would blow through all my money, just so you know. Okay, we are going to move on here a little bit. Uh, I'm going to skip point six and come back to it because it's the behind the picture story that I want to end with. Uh, so I have a little take on the media right now, especially in the middle of the virus thing. So my mom called, and my mom's a little bit freaked out. I got to spend last week with her, and she's going through some, some, some issues here. She's getting older, and, you know, the things that everybody goes through when we're older, and, some in, in, you know, uh, she's unsure about some things, and my father's been gone for a long time, so it's tough. It's really hard when your mom calls you and crying. You know, that's a, not a fun thing for anyone. And so she called, and she's pretty worried about the virus, but she's living in a really good place, right? She's out in, out in the sticks, so she's isolated. And I said, look, you're good. You've got food. I made sure you had a lot of food. You're good. Just, just hunker down, get a book, you know, watch a movie, whatever. And she called, and I said, look, you can't watch this every day on the news. You'll go insane. I said, check in twice a week because the media has just become something I don't even recognize anymore. And I, I can technically say that I was a part of the media for, for four years or five years back in the day. But what I was a part of doesn't exist anymore for the most part. The new modern media, especially television media, is just reprehensible on how, on how they go about their business. I think the only thing we have left are writers, good writers. I think writing is, is the high art of what we have left. If you want the story, then I think you have to look to writing. You cannot look online. You cannot look to television. Radio is a complete minefield because of the propaganda that's out there. Writing is, to me, really masterful. I mean, there was a piece in The Atlantic a couple of days ago that I was like, wow, that is by far the most logical, well-thought-out, well-put synopsis of what's happening than anything I've seen. And there's nothing on TV even rem remotely like it. I think TV is really doing us a disservice now. That's just my take on that. Okay. Point number eight, I think is really interesting to me when I want to talk about horrible people doing things that might 
actually end up being good, right? So if you take a horrible person that does something horrible, but ultimately the something that running behind the scenes that actually might outweigh the horribleness of what they get eventually caught for. And what I'm talking about here is Lance Armstrong. So personally, I don't care that Lance Armstrong doped. I don't because I've been following cycling for a long time. My favorite rider of all time, his nickname was Testo, okay, for testosterone. Testosterone. So Testo, yeah, he's my favorite rider of all time. Did I even bat an eye that they were taking testosterone? No, I don't care. I don't care if they pull their shorts down at the base of the climb and they inject them with like, I don't know, monkey tranquilizer. I don't care. It's a cycling event. It's not changing the world. I don't care. But here's the thing. Lance was a jerk. Lance probably is a jerk. I don't know. I've never met him. I have passed him on the road. I don't mean past me passing him like I was going faster. I mean, he was going in the opposite direction, and then I passed him kind of thing. This was in Texas, actually very close to where my mom lives. But Lance, to me, the positive outweighs the negative simply because Lance got people fired up about being on bicycles. And I think Lance's, that, that fire outweighs the ice of him being a jerk, lying, getting caught, wasting a bunch of money from the post office, whatever. I don't care. Everyone that he rode with at the time, for the most part, like 90 plus percent of those people were doped. Again, I don't care. The positive was, was great. We have to get people on bicycles. That's, it's such a wonderful thing and such an easy thing if we really wanted to do it. And so I think it's, I think it, the, the negative outweighs the positive. Or no, wait, you know what I mean. Just flip that around. Just take that last sentence, suck it into Adobe Audition, redo it, spit it out, and then play it back in your headphones. Okay, moving on. Oh, this is a good point. This is a good point. So recently I was at an event, right? It was a big event, a really big event. And I was not there. I was with someone who was going to this event, and I happened to go to this event kind of peripherally. And it was an interesting event. Now, since that time, I have, I've learned something about this event that I did not know. I didn't even know that this event was, had such a significance and a different genre of the world that I find very interesting. So the reason I'm saying this is about a week after this show is over, I'm online and I'm looking around and I see a story about the show on a major news website. And I'm like, wow, that's weird. Wow, that's cool. And I look, and it's a photo essay. And I'm looking at this photo essay, and I thought after about four images, like I don't look for the, I don't look for the byline when I'm online. I just never do that, which sucks for the artist because that's a part of it. You want to know who's doing the work or whatever. But I look at this thing, and about four pictures through the still slideshow, in my head, I defaulted to, oh, this is crowdsourced, right? This is just crap images from really bad mobile phones in bad lighting conditions by a bunch of people who were civilians who happened to be attending this event because the work was truly, it was horrible. And I got to the end and I realized that I was already going through the images twice. And the reason I was going through them twice was they were so bad. I had a hard time. I just loved it. They were so horrible that I thought, oh my God, these are, these are, these are just making me feel like I swallowed a balloon. You know, I mean, I, these are horrible. And then I realized that it wasn't crowdsourced. It was an assignment. Someone had literally been paid to do this work. And I, I realized, I looked at the name, I never heard of the person, looked him up, and guess who it was? It was an Instagrammer, a street photographer, quote-unquote street photographer, Instagrammer, who had been given this assignment. Now, let me just explain something to you. 
I used to do magazine assignments and I used to do newspaper assignments and I did commercial work and a little bit of advertising and a little bit of fashion and I shot portraits and I've done a lot of different things in photography. But the, the basis of what I'm going to tell you goes back to my training, my schooling, and then also getting an internship at a major paper which where I was supposed to reside for three months. And the photo editor came to me and said, in, in basically in these exact words, you're not, we can't, you're, you're a, basically a white guy. We can't hire you, but we don't want you to leave. So we're going to create a special position on the staff and we just want you to stick around. Okay. Now this was good for me because one, it gave me daily, continued daily shooting experience. I ended up, instead of three months, I stayed for a year and a half. The downside was it was just a, there were a lot of politics happening at that time, a lot of affirmative action things, which were good. They should have been happening. And I was totally fine with the fact that he came to me and said, basically, you're the wrong demographic. We can't hire you. Um, I learned years later that potentially I was hired and then I was fired in the same day without ever knowing about each because a new assistant managing editor came in and said, look, he's the wrong demographic. We're not going to hire him. I don't care how good he is, but it doesn't matter. So what I got this, this internship and at the end of my first week of the internship, now remember, I've already had four years of photography school and I've also been working at newspapers and freelancing while I'm in school before I get this internship. So I'm in the internship and I've got what I would call a photographic foundation. And there was a certain quality bar that had to be there or you were never going to get an internship. You were never going to get freelance assignments. That just wouldn't work. They would just look at you and say, you can't do this. You're not good enough. You don't have the skills. You don't have the foundation. So the, at the end of my first week at, as an intern at this paper, and this is a big paper. It's an international paper primarily focusing on national issues. Their international department, they'd, they'd lost a photographer during the war in Afghanistan. And that sort of you know, put an end to their international reportage. And so the end of my first week, the photo editor comes to me and says, I need you to fly to Alabama and photograph Charles Barkley's family. And I was like, what? And he goes, he looked at me and he goes, can you handle this? And I was like, I have no idea. He goes, look, go home, have a beer, think about it. And I was like, okay. And the next day I go in and he's like, all right, you know, you're flying, you're flying out to do this story. So from the begin, the end of my first week, I'm doing assignments all over the place. They're giving me really good assignments. It's not like city hall meeting guy at computer in windowless room assignment, which I've had a million times. They're giving me good stuff. And they gave me good stuff because I could bring back good photographs, right? Maybe not the world's best photos, but I could, you, you knew if you sent me, I, I would come back with something. If I had done what this photographer, this Instagrammer had done, if I had done that one time, in any point in my career, if I had shot something so bad, they would have, whoever would have assigned me, had I known them well, like this photo editor who I spent a year and a half with, they would have called me and sat me down and said, whoa, this is unacceptable. Like, this is not going to work. If this is the quality that you're going to bring in, there's no reason for you to come back. And at the time when you were in journalism and photojournalism, the rule book was very much etched in stone. You screw up a caption, you get a name wrong, you get a number wrong, you don't come back, you're fired. You stage a photo, you're fired. You do anything unethical, you're fired. Like that was it. They told you. They would say, don't come back to the paper if you do this. If you make a mistake in a caption that's in the AP style book, you're fired. So the quality was there and the fear was there. And the fear was the motivator of, I've got millions of people that are going to put their eyes on this picture the next day. I better do what I'm the, the, at the absolute highest level that I can do this at. And I looked at what was in this online news thing, and I realized that this guy had been assigned this. And I just thought, if that doesn't represent kind of where we are in terms of photography and why the industry is imploding, 
I don't know what does, what else does, because it just was, I just couldn't believe how bad it was. And, you know, you, I, I just kept thinking, I'm going to go through this again, and maybe I'm looking at this in the wrong way, or maybe there's an image here that does actually stand out. There was nothing. There was no point of view. There was no technique. There was no consistency. There was no nothing. It just looked like someone who probably crafted social media images all day long, but then got into the real world, couldn't control the scene, and didn't really have anything to fall back on. Like someone who didn't have their own thoughts. They just had what Instagram was telling them to do, and now they got into this situation, and they just didn't have the goods. And I was like, holy cow. Later that same day, I had a phone call with a New York-based photographer who's older than me, who basically is a legit, like, super legit photographer, right? He's been a reportage guy, long-term documentary project photographer for 40 years, and we were talking about a book of his that had come out. And I thought to myself, what a peculiar day in my life to have the opportunity to talk to this guy in New York who has a body of work that he spent 31 years working on and the book and the museum show and the gallery shows. And you're like, wow, this is a legitimate world-class project. And then to see this work in this online gallery at this major, major like organization is running this. I just thought, man, we need a reset, a total reset button. So I don't know how you feel about that. Okay, number, point number 10, The Great Hack. If you haven't seen that movie, it came out last year. It's about the 2016 election in Cambridge Analytica. It, if, even if you have seen it, I just want to say watch it again because the same stuff is happening now. It's unbelievable what that movie is about. If you don't know about it and you don't know about Cambridge Analytica, it is off the chart interesting. And the corruption level and the deception and the propaganda and the targeting, it's fascinating. I would watch it over and over again. I love it. Okay, point number 11 is about daydreaming. I don't know about you, but daydreaming to me is incredibly important. And we always got in trouble for it in school, right? Teacher would walk by, you'd be looking out the window or sticking your finger in your ear. And they'd be like, hey. And at the time, of course, everything came with violence. Like your teacher would just hit you in the back of the head. <laughs> What are you doing? Get that finger out of your ear. You don't know where that finger's been. But daydreaming as a, as, a, as a creative and as a photographer is absolutely essential in my mind. I don't mean pre-visualizing what you think you're going to see at an assignment. I'm talking about just daydreaming when no one is telling you what to think about. I do this before I go to sleep at night, and I do it all day long in little, little bursts, and I find it a creative reset. Let me know what you think about daydreaming. I'm very curious. Okay, moving on here. Uh, I saw a car the other day. I want to bring this up. So some of you are going to be younger and, and too young to remember this, but the OPEC crisis back in the 1970s was a gas crisis here in America. And, you know, we were famous, for, and we still are, for building these gas-guzzling, gas-hog vehicles. And all of a sudden, OPEC has this crisis in the 70s, and gas prices go through the roof, and suddenly, all of a sudden, you're seeing all these little tiny cars driving around. And my family bought a yellow Volkswagen station wagon, which is the engine, the rear engine, and uh, I think it's a rear engine, or maybe the engine's in the middle. I don't even remember. But I remember that where, sh where the engine, sh as a kid, when you look at the car, you're like, the engine is supposed to be in the front, but the front was just a trunk. It was just empty. And this was like a little four-speed manual transmission, banana yellow Volkswagen uh, station wagon with a chrome roof rack. That is my all-time favorite car. It still is. I absolutely, and my father bought it because of the OPEC thing, the gas crisis. I love that car. Actually, if you watch the movie Witness with Harrison Ford, he and they go out to the Amish property, he's in a blue uh, Volkswagen station wagon. I love this car. Volkswagen, please get your head out of your 
Cornholio and make this car again. I don't care about any of the new Volkswagens, whatever. This old style Volkswagen was the best. If I could ever get my hands on one of these, I would be so happy. They're probably impossible now and too expensive or no parts or whatever, but God, I miss those old cars. Okay. So over the past couple of weeks, and I'm going to bring this up again and again and again, because people think I'm making this up. I do not want to be a photographer. I've not wanted to be a photographer since 2010. That's why I quit photography. I still make pictures. I still do my own projects. And occasionally I will do something that's commercial, but very, very rarely. And after the last time I did that, I realized I don't even want to do that anymore. So I don't, I don't, I don't imagine doing a photo assignment ever again. But over the past couple of weeks, I've had three editorial clients reach out. Not only, they don't want to give me assignments. They wanted to run features on me believe it or not. And I think this came because of YouTube, believe it or not. So I said, no, I said no to all three. And one of these, two of them were more like photography specific. One was a massive, like international magazine that has multiple uh, international editions. And they reached out and they wanted to do a feature on me. And I said, no. And every time all three, I pitched, um, I pitched that they should do a story about AG 23. And they should do a story about the contributors in AG23 and not about me. And of course, I never heard back from anyone. That's like, it's such a different project and a different thing that most of these editors, their brain is like a drop-down menu, right? They've got 10 projects in front of them. They have very little budget. And all they're doing is checking boxes off their list all day long. And if you throw them something that's out of, out of the, the column, an inch, a half an inch, they just run the other direction because they don't know what to think of it. So I said, look, AG23 is a really interesting story about a collaboration between two brands, but it's really about the contributors. And we're trying to promote understanding through dialogue and art. And we want to promote these contributors and look at these projects. Like we got Panama Canal, we got Kurdistan, we've got design, we've got the game of Go, we got whatever. I didn't include my own in there, but you know what I mean. And um, I also just got another, an image licensed in Europe. And this one, I couldn't say no. I had to literally, because the person who wanted to use my photograph is a friend. And I said, look, there's a fee involved here. The, the magazine said there's a fee involved. And I said, I don't want the fee. I said, donate the fee or give it to the person who's, who's in the photograph because I don't need the money and I don't want the money and I don't want to be involved. I just want my friend to be happy that he has a photograph. So this is happening to me all the time. And I don't want to do this. I don't want assignments. I don't want my, my work published in magazines in Europe. I don't care. It's just not something I have any interest in at all. And that's four in this last like month that I've been approached. So it's weird how it keeps happening because I keep saying no and people keep coming back. So there's two points I want to make. The last two points of this, because uh, we're only at 34 minutes. I mean, what the hell else do you have to do now that we're all quarantined? There's two, there's two things I want to talk about. And this, the second to last point is, is about hope. I think the single most important thing that a politician or a leader or a community leader or that you or that I can do is help other people find hope. And I'm going to give you this and, and two options here. Um, our president is the, is the last person in the world who's ever going to do this. He, right. He's, and I don't, if you're a Republican, fine. You know, he's not a Republican. He never has been. He is a clown that is in his own category. He does not bring hope to anyone, right? He's a divider. He drives, he, he puts lines between people. A friend of mine the other day, a Republican called me and said, why would Trump overturn the clean water act? 
And I said, because he just wants to break things. He wants to break everything he can. And, and, if, and if Obama is attached to it in any way, shape, or form, he's going to overturn it regardless because Obama made that crack about him at the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And ever since that time, he's just been super anti-Obama, and I'm going to break anything. So Trump is never going to give hope. And here's, here's what really came to a head for me. A few days ago, I was in a small town in the Southwest, and it was at sunrise, and I was getting gas. And I look over, and there's a young girl who's working in the kiosk at the gas station. And I, I go in, and I look at this young girl who probably, I'm guessing, grew up in this small town, which is a very economically challenged area. And she is probably 30 to 40 pounds overweight already. And she's young. She's probably mid to late 20s. She's probably 30, 40 pounds overweight. She's drinking a thing of soda that legitimately looked like a two-liter bottle with a straw in it. It was that big. It was just massive. It was the most amount of soda in a single cup I've ever seen in my life. And she was also smoking a cigarette that I saw her pick up off the ground. Now, I'm not judging that about her. That was just my observations, right? And I go in, and I probably interact with her for 60 seconds. I'm buying a bag of ice. And in the 60 seconds that I'm interacting with her, she, without specifically saying anything, alludes to the fact of what's the point. And what she meant was, what's the point of any of this? Of you buying ice, of you buying gas, of me being here, of me being stuck in this thing, of culture, of society, of whatever. And I looked at this girl and I thought, you know, inside there, there's probably a remarkable person that's capable of a lot. But this is a girl that potentially woke up in the morning as a kid and just said, what chance do I have? I have no hope. There's no hope of getting out of here. I got a public school education. I probably got my high school GED, and that's it. I couldn't afford college. I got a job at this gas station. Who knows? I don't know all the details, but she had no hope, and she expressed this to me without speaking in 60 seconds twice. That was it. I, literally, it was like she and I were telepathic and talking, and she looked at me like, what, 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 what the hell's the point of all this? That, to me, is what our political program needs to do. That is what our next president needs to do. Now, we're going to be stuck with two ancient guys who are completely out of touch. Career, one's a career crook and one's a career politician. Those are very similar, by the way. Neither one of these people is inspiring in any way, shape, or form, and we're stuck with them again because our political system is so broken. We cannot get anyone in their 30s or 40s even onto the platform to inspire us, someone who speaks well, that's smart, that's a risk taker, that's educated, that understands global culture, that isn't fearful, that doesn't divide people, that doesn't, isn't a racist, isn't a sexist, that doesn't point the finger at other countries, that isn't ignorant. We need a transcendent being. What we need is a normal person to be president. Someone with decency, honesty, a good education, a sense of humor, someone that can speak well, someone that's interested in the rest of the world and, and interested in us and what can give us as a culture and a society hope. I don't know where else to start. Um, and sadly, we got another minimum, another four years of waiting for something like this to happen because believe me, I don't think either one of these people that wins is going to have a chance. Now, I'm going to vote, obviously, for whoever is not named Donald Trump because, again, I just can't handle anything that he does or says. I don't think my political view is a big, uh, a big mystery here. And again, it's not like I look at the Democratic Party and say, wow, I total faith. These people are really going to write the ship. I don't. Not at all. I just don't want him. That's it. Okay. 
we're going to move on to behind the picture. And this was something that happened uh, back when I was an intern at the newspaper. And I wanted to bring this back because it's uh, really funny what happened. So I'm an intern at the paper. And the paper is owned by a company that owns two papers, actually. A morning paper, which is my paper, and an afternoon paper, which is the other paper. But they both work out of the same building. And the both staffs of photographers, which are 20-plus on each side— work out of the same darkroom. So we're buds, we're friends, we're hanging out, but we're super competitive. So the intern, the other paper gets an intern as well. And he's a cool guy from NoCal, and we start hanging out and talking, and he's, he's a good photographer, a smart guy. And one day we're like, hey, let's go to lunch together. So we go to lunch, and we go over to this Chinese place that, um, God, I can't rem- not remember the name of it, but it was such good Chinese food. And I was, we were both like completely broke all the time. But occasionally we'd go out, we'd go to, we'd go to lunch. So we take my truck, and my truck was a Toyota SR5 four-wheel drive pickup that it, with a king cab. And so he took his gear, and I took my gear. And we had the same gear at the time. And we put it in the back of my truck very quickly. We go to lunch, and we're driving back. And we're sitting in an exit ramp, two lanes of an exit ramp, and it stopped, the traffic. So the, to my left is the freeway moving along. And, to, and in front of me is way as a line of traffic, and then way up is the stoplight. And I look out the passenger window, and I see a guy with a chrome-plated revolver out of his car with his with his gun across the roof of the car pointing it at another car and screaming let me see your hands let me see your hands get out of the car and I look and all of a sudden it from the the window in the back seat goes down right and they're super tinted it's like a Buick Regal and then both the driver's window and the passenger window st- slowly start to go down and now and, and I'm not sure my bud even knows that this is going I'm just looking out and I'm watching this and I'm thinking, oh, somebody's going to pull out like a machine pistol out of that back window, and it's going to be a gun battle. And so all of a sudden, out of the back seat comes the hands of a little boy, and he like sticks his hands and his arms out, and he's terrified. He's, he's crying. And so now my buddy and I realize what's happening, and we both turn in the back seat to grab equipment. And he accidentally grabs my cameras, and I accidentally grab his. And so we get out, and we shoot this scene. You know, we have to. You get out of your car, and when there's people with guns around, you got to identify yourself very, very quickly. And you got to make sure that you're not lines in line of fire. You don't want to make sure that you're behind someone that's in the line of fire. All these things. You don't want to scare the guy with the gun. And by this time, I'm assuming that the guy that's close to my truck is a law enforcement officer of some kind. He's an undercover guy, which in fact is what it was, who he was. And so. You get out, and and I'm yelling the name of the paper, and I've got a camera in one hand. I'm holding it up in the air, and I've got my press credential in the other, and I'm like saying, hey, 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 you know, I'm behind you, I'm behind you, blah, blah, blah. And we both shoot this. So he and I shoot basically the exact same picture, but I shot it on his camera, and he shot it on mine, which was the complicated mess that we had to sort out later. But the politics is what was interesting, and what what happened was very shocking to me. I, I was naive at the time. So his paper ran this front page, like six columns across the entire front of the paper. And it was a, it was a bust, a drug bust, or a guy that had been on the run or something like that. I don't remember all the details because I'm a jerk. I was only interested in the photograph. Um, and so my paper didn't run it at all because my paper was obsessed with selling advertising. And my paper was obsessed with making sure people came to the city to golf 
and uh, to spend their money and to go to restaurants and go into hotels. And ultimately, that was what was driving the editorial calendar was, hey, how are we going to rake in some money and how do we make sure to maintain our advertising? And yeah, that's an important story. And, you know, maybe violence is up and the drug things are up or the, maybe the police is having some success with, with apprehending people on the most wanted list or whatever. They could care less. And it was the first time that this happened. Sadly, it was not the last time that it happened. And so I worked the 3 to 11 shift, 3 p.m. to 11 p.m. And by about 7 p.m., if you did not have your story in, it would take an act of God to get something in the paper after that because they had to go to press. And so we always made a joke that like the only thing that would get in after like 7.30 was a UFO landing on the newspaper building. Then maybe you'd get that in. So what I started to do was I got a police scanner, which I'd had since my college days. And I would leave the paper, and I would get on Central Avenue, and I would drive south into the bowels of the dark side of the city. The southern part of the city at that time was very was nasty. It was dangerous. There was lots of crime, lots of violence, lots of gang activity, lots of shootings. Everything I loved in life as a photographer at that time. And I would drive down to Central Avenue, and I would pull over, and I would turn the engine off, and I would turn my scanner on. And I started to cover the city from 7 o'clock at night to about midnight every night. And I would respond to these calls on the scanner. And there was, you know, there were shootings, there were family crisis. I translated a few times for the Phoenix PD because they didn't have anybody that spoke Spanish in like domestic disputes. It was crazy. All the stuff that you don't, you would never think would happen was happening. Um, I got to a crime scene of a guy who had uh, a, a man and his family living in a shack, super nice guy with his family. Very, very, very poor, living in a shack, and a guy on angel dust um, broken in the middle of the night. And the father had a 44 mag revolver, so six-shot revolver, 44 mag. And this guy was trying to break in, and dad said, dude, you come through that door, and it's over. And the guy came through the door, and he, he shot him six times with a 44 mag. I was on that crime scene before anybody was there. I mean, it was. I got to know the police. I got to go to the fire department. And I understood what my city was about, at least a part of the city that I had not grown up in, a part of the city that I was, quote unquote, not supposed to be in. And I realized that there was uh, the, the famous photo essay, How the Other Half Lives. Um, I realized how this was what was happening in my city. And I started to build a file. And I built a file of all the things that I would shoot at night. And the day that I quit my newspaper gig, I walked in and said, look, this is happening in your city. You can deny it. You can lie about it. You can avoid it. You can never run it. But you guys all know that this is going down here. And dude, I, was at, I, was, I did assignment once in an apartment complex. And the guy that I was doing uh, the assignment on had to take his trash out. And three of his neighbors came over armed. And they escorted him to the trash cans. And as I pulled into the parking lot, there were shots fired at that location, and the police were responding. There was that much gun and gang activity that they had to have an armed escort to take their trash out. None of that ever ran in the paper. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, it was an interesting time. I'm glad I did it. It taught me a lot about life. That newspaper gig is like the, the most ultimate job in the world for a photographer in my mind. It's just the best. It never gets any credit. Everybody looks down on being a newspaper photographer. It is a remarkable life. You live in, in one year what most people live in 10 or 15. So anyway, that is our uh, episode for this week. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope everyone out there stays healthy and stays safe and also stay smart. You know, let's, let's, let's share information with one another. Stay positive. Be smart. And, um, you know, if you don't need to go out, let's just take a little time to pick up a great book or how about a journal and a pen and start writing your memoirs or writing your screenplay or writing your novel. This is the perfect time. 
So I'll see you out there at some point in time. And uh, until then.